Once again, good morning. I'd like to take a few minutes today to talk about compassion. This is one of those topics that you really need to take a small section of unless we want to be here for three or four days, which I don't think many of us would want to be. So what I'm going to like to do is I'd like to take a little bit of time this morning to look at the thread of compassion that weaves all the way through Scripture, to look at the compassion that we see that God has exhibited in the Old Testament, continued through Christ's compassion in the New Testament, and ultimately look at ourselves as extensions of his body here and how we are to show compassion. But before I get ahead of myself, let's take a look at God in the Old Testament. Many of us are familiar with uh, stories of the Old Testament and how the Israelites fell away, how they decided to go their own way. But even before that happens, let's turn to Genesis chapter 19 and look at the story briefly of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. We're all familiar with the overall story of Sodom and Gomorrah as two cities that were terribly sinful in the sight of God. And God had decided to destroy both of those cities. In chapter 19 and verse 19, we read, Lot saying to those who had come to warn him of the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now behold, Lot says to them, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have magnified your loving kindness, which you have shown me by saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountains for the disaster will overtake me and I will die. Now behold, this town is near enough to flee to, and it is small. Please let me escape there. Is it not too small that my life may be saved? He's pleading with the angels that had come to warn him to find a resting place, to find a place uh, of refuge from the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the translation that I read, loving kindness there, is the translation of a Hebrew word, which uh, is hesed, um, Forgive the pronunciation, it's terrible. But the idea is one of loving kindness. Um, We often find many translations that call it steadfast love. Some translations even use the words good deeds or kindness. But to use the word like kindness is really shortchanging the idea. Many of us are familiar with the idea in the New Testament of agape, of being the, the really truly divine love that we are to use not only for one another, but that God is used for us. In distinction from the other types of love that are um, more physical or less spiritually oriented, agape is how we are called to love one another. And in fact, we see that hesed um, is the same idea of how we are called to respond to God's favor. And as Tom mentioned in his uh, gospel sermon uh, a few weeks ago, um, it is a central theme in scriptures, in the Old Testament, the idea of hesed as a steadfast love that God has shown for us, or a loving kindness. Here we see the first time that that word is used in the Old Testament, where Lot is pleading with the angels to please show us mercy so that we can save our lives, my life and the life of my family. If we turn over one chapter to chapter 20 in Genesis and verse 13, we see that same word used again. But in this sense, it's used where Abraham is asking for mercy from his wife to save his life. Remember that there actually, um, Sarah was his half-sister, 
And yet Abraham was saying, please say that you're just my wife. Um, say that you're, she's my sister. In verse 2, we see that Abraham said, she is my sister. So Abimelech took uh, Sarah uh, from Abraham. But down in verse 13, we see that Abraham is trying to express the desire for mercy and for kindness from his wife, Sarah. In Genesis chapter 20 and verse 13, starting at verse 12. And besides, she is actually my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And it came about when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is the kindness that you will show to me. Everywhere we go, say to me, he is my brother. And so you get the sense that the word kindness as a translation really cuts short the meaning of the word. It wasn't a kindness as something that we do in passing or a, a, a just a general thought, but it's a kindness that resulted in the saving of his life. And it's that same kindness that Lot was, was um, drawing attention to in his request to the angels for a place for refuge. So we see these are the first two examples in the Old Testament of how Hesed is really kind of a, a beyond a small kindness or a small favor, but is a life-giving favor that is being asked. But that's how people had used the words. But what about our relationship with God and how we are to understand that? Well, let's remember the, the situation in Exodus chapter 15, um, and we find that the, the Israelites were now leaving Egypt. They were fleeing the Egyptians. They were being chased. In fact, the Egyptians were, so to speak, hot on their heels. Um, let's turn to Exodus chapter 15 and look at the, the song that was sung after they crossed over dry land. Exodus chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. In fact, the whole chapter is, um, is the song that Moses and Israel sang after they crossed over um, and were able to escape the Egyptians. Verses 7 through 13. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deep deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I shall draw out my sword. My hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank there like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises and working wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness... You have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. And so we see the loving kindness that God showed was not for an individual or even a family. It was for the entire body of the Israelites as they were able to escape the pursuing Egyptians. And so God has shown his mercy to his people. In Deuteronomy, let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapters 5, 6, and 7. For a little context, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments were again re-delivered to the Israelites to explicitly state the guidelines that God had provided to them and what they should do. In chapter 6 and verse 4, there is what's called the Shema. And this is even today, as is commonly taught to children to say before they go to, to Jewish children before they go to bed, 
Um, it's often said twice a day um, by faithful Jews in prayer, even today. Um, and it's the declaration that there is one and only one God, um, and that he is our God. And that's Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. So in that context, with understanding the, the role that the Israelites had and the response that they had to the one and only God and the, the rules that God had laid out for them, let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you will enter to possess it, and this is the promised land that they had been looking forward to, when he brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when you, the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your sons or your daughters or they will take their daughters for your sons. And so they entered, they were promised to enter into the promised land. And God would give them the promised land and give them nations that were even more powerful than themselves into their hands in victory. But if we move down to 9 through 14, God reiterates the fact that the Israelites were his chosen people. Thou know, therefore, that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God. Again, echoing chapter 6 and verse 4 who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with, those, with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to keep them. Then it shall come about because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the grain and your new wine and your oil and the increase of your herd and the young of your flock and the land which he swore to your forefathers to give to you. The increase that was promised to the Israelites was directly due to the loving kindness that God had showed to them, that the God of heaven had given them this land and promised to them. It's hard to imagine that in such a gift that God had handed to them, that the Israelites would be so quick and so ready to turn to other gods, turn to other ways, and to be unfaithful to the one who had promised them so much. In Hosea chapter 6 and verses 4 through 6. Hosea was written in a time around just before 722 BC. The Assyrians were attacking both Israel on the north and Judah on the south and were threatening to overcome, which in fact they eventually did in 722. Hosea is the last prophet to prophesy before the fall of Israel and Judah in 722. And he's giving them a warning and telling them why are they in peril? Why are they looking toward this destruction and toward this capture from the Assyrians? 
And in this passage, it's important to note that um, in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 6, that the phrase Ephraim is another way to uh, call Judah, uh, call Israel, excuse me. Starting at verse 4 in chapter 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces with, by my prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments of you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So we see here that the call is for the Israelites to be faithful from the heart, not just in their actions, not just in their empty sacrifices, not just in the ways that they physically manifest uh, a faith in God, but from the heart, God is calling them to show that faithfulness and to respond to that loving kindness that God has had for them up to this point. And hard to believe, but even in Christ's time, that was still a call and still a challenge that they refused to hear. Let's turn over a few books to Matthew chapter 12. Now remember that Hosea was prophesying in a time right before the Assyrians were going to capture Israel and Judah. It was a time when there was desperation in the land. There was fear. There was uncertainty. But that fear and uncertainty was because that they had fallen away. They had started worshiping other gods. They had started marrying within other nations. They had fallen away from their one true God. And even we see that same approach continues in Christ's time. The first seven verses of chapter 12 of Matthew. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the grains the heads of grain, and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and how they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. And here Christ is quoting that same verse that we just read from Hosea, where he calls out the fact that, Christ, that God is not demanding a physical offering that is empty and hollow, but he's demanding our heart and our compassion from our hearts as such, true worship of him. If we turn back a few, verse, a few chapters to chapter 9 in Matthew, verses 9 through 13, again, Christ encounters the Pharisees and has a few choice words for them. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as, the, as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and the sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, 
It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so Christ is reaching out to the tax collectors and the sinners, in fact, to all of us individually, to recognize what God is calling for us to worship him from a true heart, from an honest heart, and from a sense of compassion and responsibility for what he has done for us. It's interesting to note that this phrase, that this um, verb that's used for compassion is only used in the Synoptic Gospels. It's only used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we see that in those examples, uh, many of which were covered a couple of weeks ago in the adult Bible class um, by Mike, the examples that Christ has of compassion as the one that was read for us this morning are examples where the individuals are weak, the individuals are sick, the individuals need help or guidance or protection. In fact, they need healing in many cases. If we stay in Matthew chapter 9 and look down at verses at verse 36, if we look at the context, we see, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. What is Christ's response to that situation? What is Christ's response to him seeing the people without a shepherd? If we look down at the beginning of chapter 10, we see that he summons his 12 disciples and he gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. His direct and immediate response to having compassion and seeing the need is to send his 12 disciples out with the power to heal those who are sick. In every instance where Christ has compassion, we see that that compassion is immediately followed with action, is immediately followed with some direct response that Christ makes. Either it's healing or it's even resurrecting a widow's son in Luke chapter 7. But if we look back at Matthew chapter 15, not only are the people in chapter 9 weak and following uh, who don't have food, but also in Matthew chapter 15, in verse 32, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now for three days and have nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. And so what does he do? The 4,000 people here with him, he feeds in a miraculous way. Seven loaves and a few small fish. Ultimately, the Christ's compassion has a result, has a response in feeding those who were following him and who were falling and becoming weak. We see in the, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the adult Bible class, um, Christ the healer in Matthew chapter 14 where he heals um, in Mark chapter 1, he restores lepers back to health. Um, he restores the sight to the blind in Matthew chapter 20. And in Luke chapter 7, he resurrects the widow's son. All as examples, as immediate and direct responses of compassion that Christ had had on those who were following. So we see, in fact, that Christ's response to compassion is not merely emotional, but there's a, a physical response there is an active response that Christ makes in that compassion. And if we connect, in fact, what God has done in the Old Testament where he showed the, the way for the Israelites to follow, he gave them a land for their own and gave them, against incredible odds, victory to take that land. 
And we see the doubt that the, the Israelites had in believing that physical laws and physical manifestations were sufficient to show a spiritual cleanliness and a spiritual dedication that Christ called out to the Pharisees saying, it's not sacrifice that want, God wants, but it's our hearts. And then Christ's exemplification of those of passionate actions that he makes each and every time where he is moved by the needs of those who are following him. So the question is, the third part is, what do we take from that? It's not just an understanding of what God has done for the Israelites or what Christ has done for us and hence sacrificing himself. If we understand that, but what is our action? What is our resultant response to that love? Well, let's turn over to chapter 12 of Romans. Romans chapter 12. This is the first and immediate response that we're called to have to God's love. Chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, and there's that same word, mercies, is used for compassion. By the mercies of God as the example, as the lead, as the light that we're to follow. By the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We're called to sacrifice ourselves as that act of worship. That is the physical manifestation of, of what we are called to do and the response we are called to have. And ultimately, if we look at that, that is exactly what we're called to do in following what Christ has exemplified for us. Christ sacrificed himself as an act of worship. He took our sins on himself as a response to the call, the compassion that he saw for us as a dying world, as individuals who alone were lost and he alone could save. His physical response was to sacrifice himself, was to do his father's will over his own, that we can have that hope of eternal life. And in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, we're called to have that same response, that same attitude that Christ himself had. Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 3 and look and see one more example of how we're to emulate what Christ has done. Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 and 13. So we're called to live our lives as sacrifices, to live our lives as a sacrifice, a sacrificial offering to God. But also in verses 12 and 13 of Colossians chapter 3. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, when I read this the first time, an interesting echo I heard in my mind. It makes me think directly of the model prayer that Christ prayed. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And those are, in, in fact, the same words that we see in verse 13. Forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you. Again, Christ took our sins upon himself and has forgiven our sins as only he could do through that sacrifice, through that response of the compassion that he feels for us. So ultimately, we're called to forgive each other and to be servants and live sacrificial lives 
But ultimately, if we turn back to Philippians chapter 2, and I've read Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 or 3 and following many times from the pulpit, but I'd like to focus on the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. And what this does is that before in the following verses, Christ is exemplified as being the sacrificial offering for us, as emptying himself for us, taking no form for us. And yet right before that passage, we are called to be like him, to emulate him. In the first four verses of Philippians chapter 4, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. So we see that from the complaints that Christ had made, the condemnation of the Pharisees, the physical sacrifices that they made without the heart being within it, without the heart being behind the sacrifice. We see here that we're called to be spiritual from the heart first and that we can sacrifice ourselves and, in fact, do it for one another. So our call is to emulate what Christ has done for us, to have that same compassion, that same emotional response, but not just an emotional response to those that we see in need around us, to those that we see need help or need support, but have some response and have some action behind that emotion as a result. We're not able to heal one another, but we're able to pray for one another. We may not be able to to do wonderful and miraculous things, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to live lives for one another, to have that heart of compassion from the heart and not just rote movements. But we're called to have that same compassion that Christ had for us, to put others ahead of ourselves, and in fact, to focus on them because Christ focused first on us and what he did for us. So that's our call for this week. As you're going through your life this week, if you see opportunities to show compassion for those around you who are in need, remember what God did for the Israelites, for the love and the compassion that he showed for them. But also remember the love that Christ showed and the call that he made for us to be sacrificial from our hearts. And the letter to the Romans where we're called to live that sacrifice for God. Remember that as you go through your life this week. Remember the choices that we have to make those sacrifices and to be compassionate for those in need around us. This call isn't for just members of the body, for those who put on Christ, but it's for everybody to recognize what God has done for us. Christ has sacrificed himself for us. He's taken our sins upon himself for us. He's called us to make a response, to recall the love that he's given to us and to put him on in baptism. If you have not yet put him on in baptism, if you have not accepted him, Christ, as your Lord and Savior, and let him take your sins and your burdens upon himself and to wash you clean, this is an opportunity to make that happen, to recognize the call that Christ has made for us, for each one of us to respond to his love and to his offer. If you've accepted him but have fallen away, if you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters in this body, please let us know as we stand and sing.